1: you said that i can't
2: believe i said that that's a
1: great yeah quote. are you sure Jeez. i said that
2: yeah she you know, wrote I, I, well i i it was I, must was, have been absolutely. one of my more loose you should be a writer one, one of my no, more
3: you should be a writer that's a good that's one really of the more good lucid, <laughs> lucid
2: moments
1: from the ted audio collective this is design matters with debbie millman for 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, the Indigo Girls talk about their long career in music and the obstacles that are still there. If women are never
3: given a chance to be in those spaces, we cannot get better.
2: If you don't play into the patriarchal, heterosexual mold, you're not going to get as far as a straight woman.
0: And Emily Saliers met in elementary school but they didn't really get to know each other until high school when they started performing music together. They both went off to separate colleges and then they started playing together again and decided to call themselves the Indigo Girls. Their first full-length album came out in 1987 and they have been making music together ever since. They have each done a lot of different things on their own, but their extraordinary creative collaboration has endured. They join me now to talk about it and all the wondrous things they're doing. Amy and Emily, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be
2: here. Yeah, we're excited about this.
0: Emily, you are the daughter of a well-known Methodist pastor and church musician. He also taught at Emory and Candler School of Theology, and you've said that your whole upbringing was saturated in theological discussion
2: and music. What kind of music
0: were you introduced to back then?
2: Well, as a young child, I sang in kids' church choirs and sang in a children's choir the Callenwald, the young singers of Callenwald in Atlanta. Uh, both my sisters and I did that when we were very young. And then in the house, my parents listened to a lot of jazz and a lot of classical music. They weren't really into like the songs, like folk music or rock music or any of that that I came to know and love. But there was a, we had a turntable in the living room, and I'd get up on Saturday mornings. There was always either jazz or, particularly classical music going on, and then of course. All the girls picked a lesson and we all a music lesson and we all sang and we we went to concerts and so we, our household literally was saturated. And then my dad, he's been writing sacred music for for a long time.
0: And you wrote a book together actually. We
2: did. I was trepidatious about writing a book connected to organized religion in any way and we, we walked each other through that. And basically I consider all music in a space sacred music. And so we sort of broke down the barriers between Saturday night and Sunday morning and what was happening in a spiritual sense when Amy and I played till 3 a.m. at a bar with a bunch of locals and, you know, an eclectic mix of musicians and what was happening on Sunday morning and how music can inform your life and inspire you and deepen your understanding of life and your spiritual path uh, really in any context.
0: Amy, quite a few of your relatives were also Methodist ministers, and you spent quite a lot of time at church. And you've said that there were Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, and Friday night youth group all at the church. Uh, You also went to church camp for five years. Um, There was music around you uh, as well. But from what I understand, you were dreaming of becoming David Cassidy, the popular teen idol (laughs) on the hit show The Party. Partridge family. Was that because he was the one that got all the girls? I d-
3: <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah. I I mean, probably not my finest musical taste hour, but uh, I still have a very big place in my heart for the Partridge family. Um, yeah, I don't know. You know, back then, I think I definitely pictured myself as David Cassidy instead of wanting to be with David Cassidy, which is, I guess, the first sign of lesbianism. But um, (laughs) yeah, I just loved these young, you know, rock idols, basically, (laughs) kiddie rock, I guess. And so I would pose, you know, in front of the mirror and have a little microphone and pretend like I was singing and stuff. And, you know, just kid. I mean, I was in second and third and fourth grade. And then I started listening to just normal music.
0: I think the Partridge Family is kind of normal music. Well, though. great
3: pop songs. I mean, some of the greatest songwriting, for sure. Like those writers were amazing, and and yeah. I, you know, the show was so fun and stuff. And David Cassidy was, you know, great, great performer. Absolutely.
0: I, I had more of a crush. Looking back on it, I didn't know it at the time, but I think I had more of a crush on Susan Day, who played Laurie Partridge. Um, I And I also liked Bobby Sherman more than David Cassidy, but that's a whole separate, we can have a whole separate podcast <laughs> <That> was, on. <laughs> yeah,
3: that was like the question of like, it's like, do you like The Who or The Rolling Stones? It's like, do you like Bob, yeah. Sh- Bobby Sherman or David Cassidy? Yeah very uh, a patriarchal centered discussion for sure
2: <laughs> absolutely
0: <laughs> um, now technically you first encountered each other when Emily first moved to Decatur Georgia and began attending Laurel Ridge Elementary School and Emily you entered sixth grade Amy you were in fifth and you re- but you didn't really become friends until later but I I do believe that there was a a, a rather important first impression that you had of each other in, in terms of music as well. Can you can you talk about that a little
2: bit? Well, you know, up until a certain point in life, you don't really co-mingle with someone in a different grade than you are. But it was pretty small school and I was aware of Amy because she was the other girl who played guitar. And I came, you know, into Laurel Ridge when my family moved to Georgia and I played guitar. So it was just sort of an awareness of that and for me initially, nothing beyond that, but it was enough to have me curious and Amy from the outset.
0: Now, what motivated you both to pick up the guitar specifically as opposed to any other instrument?
3: Well, for me, we took piano when we were young. It was kind of like a rule in our house that you took piano for three years.
0: That's a good rule.
3: I wish yeah, I Yeah, it was. That rule. It was actually. And we did it and but I it wasn't that transparent portable and I wasn't that great at it. And I was listening to my sister, my older sister's records from like Woodstock and stuff, you know, that hippie era and, you know, folk music. And I just, I wanted to play Neil Young songs basically, you know? And so I thought, okay, I'll just, I'll learn guitar. And, and my, one of my sisters played guitar. I think maybe both of them even did, but it just seemed like a great, more kind of a cool instrument. You know, I played flute for a little while, but I wasn't very good at that at all. You know, I just, I took it to the YMCA up the street and I was like, this is definitely cool. You know, you can, and I think I was exposed at church, you know, a youth group, the youth ministers always had a guitar. We were like a singing sort of folky Methodist church. So there was a ton of that around at church camp all the time. There was always guitars, kumbaya, all that, you know, so yeah, it just seemed cool and, and like a thing to do. So you...
0: Are sort of a proper musician. You know how to read music. You know how to do all of those scales and things. Uh, not like Emily. I can f- pick out a piano song.
3: I'm having, I have trouble with the bass cleft, but I'm learning it because my child is taking piano. So I'm relearning all that stuff. Yeah, but I can, I mean, I know a little bit, but not like em- Emily. I didn't retain a lot. Let's just say that. I mean, I took jazz. I took like so, so many classes and I just never,
0: never practiced enough. So let that be a lesson, I guess. Emily, I, I understand you were able to pick out the chords of Joni Mitchell's songs as, as you were growing up. That's pretty difficult.
2: Well, I until I discovered her actual tunings, I was flailing at them, but I was so obsessed with her that I just had to yeah. play her song. So I just kind of found my way around. But then I got a, I think it was For the Roses songbook, and I looked at those mm. guitar tunings and that just like, from then on, I've been also like a big fan of different alternative guitar tunings. Um but Joni Mitchell, she just was like the light of my musical life and and path. And so I was obsessed with her.
0: Yeah, I still am. All these Me years too. later, I still am. And I'm so happy that she's getting so much of the acclaim she deserves. I think she's one of, if not the best singer-songwriter of the 20th century. I agree with you. Anyway, your older siblings were in school together, and they were in some plays and musicals, and at 15 and 16 years old, you found yourself in chorus together. And Amy, I read that when you first started singing together, you thought your head was going to explode and realized that Emily was your musical soulmate. Yeah, I I think
3: I did write that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Debbie, you love that, don't you? You're like smiling I know. so big.
0: <laughs> I, I, I just, when I read, and that that you were inconsolable. I, I read that as well, that you were yeah, inconsolable. I, I was
3: like, this is it for me. You know, I found my path. I don't think Emily felt the same way, but that's the way it is. I mean, and I was a year younger too. So I was very like, in awe of the older person and Emily disputes this, but she was very popular in high school, and maybe I have a romanticized vision, but she dis- she disputes that. But there was a certain magnetism already, and so I was like, whoa, and the sound of harmony and someone that could just sing harmony to anything. It was a whole new thing for me, because I'd been in church choir and chorus, and you know, my sister's all—and my dad sings and everything, but I I hadn't experienced the— effect of singing with someone in harmony, like next to you, that's just a single person. It's a very different sound than a choir, you know, because in the choir, it's like you could open your mouth and nothing comes out and you still can't, the, the choir can't tell, you know, <laughs> basically. When it's just you two, it's like this, uh, you know, overtones are created and crazy things that feel so magical. So I think for me, I was like, wow, this is it. This is what I want to do. This is the person I'm going to sing with. And I want to do it all the time. And I didn't care about making money. I just, I was like, I just want to do this. It wasn't about like fame or I wasn't thinking about the way you think now because things are so accessible with YouTube and like people that become sort of instantly famous. And at the time we didn't have any of that. So I was just, all I could think about was every day I want to do this. Like, that thats that was the important thing, right? Which I think is good, you know, because look at where we are. I think it's good to have that perspective of something that you just love. That was my response. You're accurate. I don't know where you get your info, but it's good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Emily, was it the same for you? I, I kind of got the sense as I was researching your, your histories together and separately that it wasn't quite the same epiphany
2: it's okay no not the way Amy describes it for her but what it was was the most fun thing I was doing and we became really good friends in high school I mean we used to quote lyrics to each other we loved the last time I saw Richard by Joni Mitchell and we did remember Amy we used to get so heavy into lyrics and yeah sign them in our yearbooks sign them in our yearbooks and so we had we were like best friends at that point in high school very soul connected and but just playing those songs together was fun. Like we both picked songs that we like to do, and then we were really encouraged by our AP English teacher, Mr. Lloyd, Ellis Lloyd. And so he set us up with like, well, why don't you learn some songs and you can play for the class? And so, but I have never in my life sort of Amy's so she's so in touch like with with what's going on, and she has a vision for things, and she always knew what to play next and and kind of what to do. And I. I mean, I'm not trying to be self-deprecating, but I'm a little bit head in the clouds just trying to figure out what's going on around me. And so for me, it was just like, wow, this is really, really fun. And uh, Amy really propelled us in terms of the next steps to take. But I also, I wanted to be an English teacher.
0: I know. I want to talk about that. And then
2: I was like, (laughs) when I was 11, I was taking classical guitar and my, I was just into a different kind of music really until I became more co-rooted in the music that Amy was turning me on to, you know, and then when we start like instead of learning a song by the Beatles or Carole King or James Taylor, we would learn a song by everything but the girl or maybe Lloyd Cole or something like that, you know, and she just opened my world. But I was never a visionary with what I wanted to do with the rest of my life except this, you know, distant thing of being an English teacher. And then we went to different colleges at first. So it was like, okay, well, whatever happens, happens you after
0: graduation from high school Emily you enrolled at Tulane University you were an English major intending to go on to grad school uh, and become a teacher and Amy you moved to Nashville a year later also to study English I'm also an English major I joke that I have we have degrees in reading um, <laughs> and yeah. you, but you studied English and religion at Vanderbilt University um, neither were particularly good experiences for you and you decided to come back and independently without realizing it, you both uh, applied to, got into, and then decided to go to Emory. What was happening that year that you both didn't enjoy where you were?
3: You know, Emily was a freshman at Tulane and I was a senior in high school. So I just remember going to see Emily and playing some together on Bourbon Street and seemed like a pretty amazing environment. So I was psyched to go to college. And my sister had gone to Vanderbilt in Nashville, too. And she had worked at this cool record store. And, and I was really, you know, looked up to my sister. And when she was at Vandy, she, you know, she lived in the philosophy dorm, and everybody played Dungeons and Dragons and listened to cool music. And I was like, that's where I want to go to school, you know. But I got up there, and I got a job at that record store. It was called The Great Escape, you know, walking in my sister's footprints. And, it had just shifted so quickly to this from the school that would have black flag, come play a concert to like, everything's all about sororities and fraternities and, and toned and like polite society and very kind of racist. And it was like the Reagan era was starting. And I just was like, you could either be like a completely like stoned out person and not be involved at all. Or you could be, or you had to be like completely engaged and all that stuff. And I just, I, I, I'm in between all that, you know, I'm like a very engaged person. I love student government. I love being an organizer and I love all that stuff, but it was so heavy handed in the sort of the elite society kind of moneyed way that there was a big division between, you know, the international students and the, the other students and the rich students and the poor students and sororities and non sororities. So I just, I had a girlfriend. I had fallen in love my senior year in high school She was at UGA. We were constantly having trouble. She didn't really want to be gay. I was like thoroughly gay. (laughs) And I was, but I was very self, I hated myself. I was so self-loathing and I was so depressed and just like, I mean, I hated myself. I wanted to be anyone but who I was. But I'm also constantly tempted by all these fun things like working at the record store and playing music and playing racquetball. And so I was like a weird combination of things. And my head was spinning and I just couldn't, I couldn't make it work, you know? And I was like, I just got to leave this place um, because there's too many. I mean, my favorite things were like, honestly, my religion classes were amazing. My English classes were amazing. I had a therapist that I discovered who helped me out of a really dark time and and I loved, loved, loved working at that record store so much. All that stuff was not enough to keep me even keeled. And I just, I was like, I got to go home to Atlanta and just be around my family, be in a scene where at least I feel like somewhat tethered to something, you know, to save me. So, I did it, you know. And and at that, yeah. And Emily was, I'm not sure what she, what her battle was, but. Then I found she was coming back to Emory, too. And I was like, yes, we can continue doing our music.
0: (laughs) So it was a good thing in that way. What was the the source of your depression at the time? I know that with your parents being so super conservative— You've yeah. written about and 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 I'm 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 only going to use this word because this is the word that I that I read and found in my research that that you said that your parents were destroyed by having three gay kids in one family. You had come out. Your two sisters are also gay. And yeah, uh, was, yeah that, I mean, was that? Yeah, I mean,
3: it's. I mean, I hate it. It's so hard now because my dad's passed away. And my mom is so amazing, and they were both. Even before my dad died eight years ago, he was just he had come around to the place where you couldn't love gay people any more than they do. <laughs> it's so it, it's amazing what happened. But they were destroyed in this way where we were so close and raised to be very community-minded and generous, and there were so many good values instilled in us, yet this one thing was so in opposition to their faith and everything they believed in, and they just couldn't picture it. And their friends rejected them in the church, it was a long, a very long road for them to get by. So I mean, I felt like not only do I mean they were destroyed and like, not happy for us, they were scared for what would happen to us. They were scared that they had done something wrong when they raised us because they were taught that this what we are was a perversion. So there was so much fear that it became anger. They were always a little bit left of the middle in other ways, you know, pro-choice. And my dad was like a feminist and all that stuff. This is like the one thing that just... So it just was a life shift for them that they couldn't picture, right? And then they saw us as being damaged, and they were afraid that they were the ones that did it. And I think they had to come around to realize that it's not damage, you know? It's just another existence that's beautiful as everything else. But that kind of society... Thing and when you are, and then when you have self-loathing yourself, it's it's a recipe for a lot of terrible times and yeah. and and ways that just reiterate how you already feel. Yeah, you know now it's it's hard totally to talk about time. now because they're yeah. they're so great now. You yeah. know that it's like I don't want them to ever feel bad about what we went through because they worked so hard to come out on the other side of it. You know, so yeah. it's it's one of those things that's. It's a necessary conversation, but it's like, wow, you know, you can make it through this. I mean, and
0: I'm lucky, like, that they did, really, for me, you know. Emily, what was it like with your family when you first came out?
2: Well, my sisters knew before. I, I mean, I think my parents knew. There was very little language for it. I mean, I can yes. remember in high school, like, knowing I was different, but having no way to articulate what that difference was and— you know, trying to follow the path of dating guys and, and all that stuff. So, but my sisters knew because I had like, <laughs> I don't know, like a camp counselor girlfriend on the side or something. is very typical and, <laughs> and uh, they were so lovely, uh, my sisters, and so supportive. And, you know, I had a lot of fear about telling my parents, even though in my gut I didn't think they were going to kick me out of the house or ostracize me in any way. That was all internal but I was spending a lot of time out of the house, and I lived with them at that time. And I felt out of respect, I should tell them why I was out and what I was doing and what I was feeling. And so I just took them to lunch separately. And it was a different time. I think that if anything, they were just afraid of the life that I would have to go through, you know, what societal pain there would be. But beyond that, I mean, it was nothing. You know, I when I was five years old, my mom made us a lot of clothes, and she made us Easter dresses and I asked for Easter pants and she made me Easter pants. So I think the writing was on the wall in a way. Um,
0: (laughs) I asked for pants too when I was about five or six years old. My brother was having a birthday party and I wanted to wear pants. And this was the 60s and it was just very different, totally different time. And my mother was adamant that she was not going to let me wear pants. And I ended up falling just completely unrelated to the, to the argument about pants. And I scratched up my face and she felt so bad. She ended up letting me wear pants.
2: Yeah. I mean, even that is traumatic. I think my mom just said, okay, I'll make you use your pants. But I was so oh, yeah. unscathed my whole process, you know, not only my family and my friends, but like the church, like we, we went to church at Emory, so it was an ecumenical setting, it was academic. We had uh, members of different faith communities come in and give the sermon or homily or whatever it called in that faith, and and we were, we were taught to come home and ask questions about, you know, the text, the scriptures, and all that stuff, so I didn't have to go through so much of the agony that other people did when they were kicked out of their church or their homes or... Um, But the agony that I went through was my own self-loathing, my own self-homophobia, which I still have to battle today so much better. Me too. But it's Mm -hmm. undeniably still there.
0: Well, we were socialized that way. We were brought up that way. I didn't come out until I was 50 because I felt so much internal shame and I was worried about being judged. I was worried about... Just what people would think. My father never knew. He died not knowing. And my mom still calls my wife my friend. I mean, wow. you probably yeah. were too.
2: Like, you're, what you're supposed to do is, have, is be attractive to men. Right. Like, yeah. that's the goal. I mean, I've always
0: been kind of femmy, but, you know, it's not yeah. really a reflection on my sexuality. It's just more right, right. that I like to sort of feel a certain way. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah it was a very different time in the 80s. I mean, I remember... Sneaking into different LGBTQ bookstores in the West Village and finding <laughs> Farron for the first time. Oh my god! And, woo, <laughs> you know, and I, but I was completely closeted. I would go to Henrietta's or the Cubby Hole and just go by myself and just occasionally kiss girls, and no one knew. No one in my life knew that I was doing really? this because I was so like scared. you did
3: you didn't ever see anybody there, like at Henrietta's or no. Cubby Hole or wow. nope. Never. That's never pretty amazing.
2: When I was at Tulane, I remember, well, there's a few pivotal things I remember. One was seeing the movie Personal Best and being terrified that someone would see me in the theater. Absolutely terrified, but I had to go. And the other was Chris Williamson and Vicki Randall was in her band back then, and they came and played a show at Tulane, and I sat there also terrified, not knowing why I was terrified, like trying to tear down the band in my mind in some way because... <laughs> I didn't know what was going on with me. And looking back, it's like, oh my goodness, was that transparent or what? Yeah, no, I, know. It's, it's,
0: I have so much compassion for that little baby Dyke that was so afraid to just be who she was and ended up, you know, spending the first 50 years of her life sort of tortured by it. Mm-hmm. It's been 10 oh, years God. now otherwise, so there's thankfully a, a happier ending to that mm-hmm. or a happier mid-story. Um, But But can
3: you find moments in that time – now I'm interviewing you. No, that's fine. Can you find moments in that time, though, where you can remember some happiness of that, like uh, some thrill of like if you were – I can just picture New York at that time, too. If you were at the cubbyhole and like there was like a thrill – like do you remember like those moments of happiness, though, when you felt some liberation? Like do you have any of that?
0: Yeah. I mean I knew that I – there was a feeling that I felt of being home, of being – that I can't really explain it more than that. Um, But now, you know, 10 years into this new chapter, I can say I really understand what pride means because you feel proud Mm. of being who you Mm. are as opposed to ashamed. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, the the thrilling moments for me were discovering like the Anne Bannon novels and buying them all, which is pulp lesbian fiction for those that might be listening and not aware of who Anne Bannon is. And I would go back to my apartment, which I shared with a married couple, and I would go under my covers with a flashlight and I would read these books. And then I found On Our Backs and then I found Off Our Backs and then I found um, Jeb and, you know, I'd find all of these sort of little amulets that I would mm-hmm. and I still have to this day I still have my yes. my original copy of the joy of lesbian sex which I got in the 80s before I even <laughs> had a, you know anything major in my life but whatever um this is getting to be TMI but I you know I <laughs> Not did for us those, pri- <laughs> those, those private that. private moments those I they were moments of real joy and, and they yeah. were very private, and you know, now I can you know talk about it and and share those things. I, I was talking to my friend Wendy McNaughton years ago about this, and she's like, "Oh my God, you should create a little baby dike museum because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I have
3: all these things still." You know, little breadcrumbs to your yeah. path to yeah, who you are. Remember when if you <laughs>
2: but- subscribed to a magazine that would come in a brown paper cover? I remember yeah. that, like the secrecy of it all. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, Crazy, and, and right?
0: I and I remember hiding these books and putting them behind other books and backwards and, you know, just because I was so worried. But, mm. you know, one thing I do want to ask you, and I know that you've been asked this a million times, but just for, for the two people in the universe that might not be aware. Um, as I was preparing for the interview, I can't tell you how many times the question came up about whether or not you'd ever been a couple. And my favorite perspective on this came from an interview that you did on NPR And the interviewer stated that she was constantly surprised by the number of people who assume that the two of you must have dated each other at least once in your lifetimes. And I know that this is not true. This, you, you never, you've always been best friends. And she suggested that it was driven by the slightly phobic assumption that anyone of the same sex will do for anyone um, who identifies as a lesbian. And she goes on to state that just because we're gay doesn't mean that we're always gay for each other. (laughs) And, (laughs) and, and, And I was wondering if the assumption ever annoys you or if it's just sort of like so old now that you just kind of get a kick out of it. It never annoyed me. It, it,
3: it actually always made us laugh because it's like, it's like saying, like, do you date your sister? Right. It's like so from left field that we're just like – it's kind of like when someone sees one of us at the grocery store and they ask where the other one is. We're like, yeah, we actually live in separate towns. <laughs> like, it's just – it's cute because it, I guess we're so like together in everything that we do, Indigo Girls, there's just like two spots and it's always going to be us on the same sides that you can't adjust your vision, you know. But I swear when you see the Backstreet Boys, you're not like, where are, your, where are the other band members, <laughs> <Right>. you know?
0: <laughs> well, you know, speak for yourself. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but yeah, I don't know how Emily feels. About no,
2: her. I feel the exact same way. And I, I I mean, it's. I don't get them anymore. But I used to get the questions if someone see me in the grocery store. Where's Amy? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know where Amy is. (laughs) Far from here. Ask
0: her. (laughs) So, your original name as a as a duo was Sailors and Ray. You started actually. Your first recording was in high school. You recorded a tape called Tuesday's Children. In high school. So what was the motivation behind that? Or was, was were we both in high school or was you in college
3: for already? It was 1981. so Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah, she was a senior. Well, we had fun recording ourselves because it was the way you heard yourself back, <laughs> I guess. You know what I mean? So, I, I mean, the way we used to record was on just like a little jam box, you know. Rest record. No no tracks, just us singing together. I have all those tapes from like rehearsals and stuff. I just remember we we had a song called Tuesday's Children that was written about us playing on open mic nights at a club called Good Old Days. It was just like a romantic little, sentimental song about having fun that on all those writers nights. I guess I remember playing that in Ellis Lloyd's class, our English teacher's class. I think, but I feel like you were already at college, maybe. Anyway. I can't I remember know.
2: the timeline. And then we
3: made like a real cassette called Blue Food that we actually sold, I think, our first year at Emory, right? Maybe at the time, the the deal was like you wanted to I was always like, we got to record something. So when we play a show, we can leave something with people to remember us. So they'll come back. You know, that was like the business model. (laughs) So it wasn't about making money or even it was just making these tapes and then people would bootleg it and it would just go around, you know, and that's how you got known, you know, and people would come to your gigs because the most important thing was for people to show up at your shows because then you could get another show. And that's just how we worked. We were very like one step at a time. We're so young. We don't have to like conquer the world. We just need to get like the next gig at, at that place that we want to play at, you know. So, yeah. So we started making cassettes and then we made a single the single was it's called a Crazy
0: Game and Everybody's Waiting for Someone yeah. to Come Home.
3: You yeah, recorded it in yeah.
0: 1985 on vinyl. And you issued it on your own label, which I think is just so incredibly entrepreneurial. Um, and you named your label for your high school English teacher, who you've referenced now a couple of times, Ellis Lloyd. So I couldn't find the name of the, of the actual label. Was it called Ellis Lloyd oh, Productions? It was, or It was J. Ellis lloyd
3: records or something or jealous, jealous records, records. Jalice, yep. jealous oh. records yeah i mean it was just for that record <laughs> and, <laughs> so. and
0: so why him specifically and did, did like does he is he still a big fan is he still coming to your shows well i'll let emily say why him but i will
3: say before she says that that he lives in my neighborhood and my mom still lives in the same house as she lives alone there and he jogs by her house every day And moves the trash cans back into the carport after trash day, brings her the paper and brings her her mail and leaves it at the door. So I know he's around because of that. Worthy label namer. Yeah. And what What he? Emily can...
2: He was... I mean, teachers can be some of the most influential figures in your entire life. And he was one of those, both for Amy and for me. And I would say largely for all the people who took his AP English classes, he was... He challenged us academically. He didn't accept, uh, you know, mediocre work. He was very engaged in our lives. He helped a lot of kids. He helped me decide. He said, why don't you look at Tulane? He just was uh, vibrant, supportive, very smart, you know, academically demanding. And everybody was very, very stimulated by his class and the way he taught us. And he was so supportive of me and Amy that we just felt like, well, I don't know whether we'd be doing this had he... Well, we might be anyway, but who knows. But he invited us to get a collection of songs together so we could do a concert for the class. So we owe a lot to him.
0: You then took the boxes of
2: your single
0: to the Emory campus, set up in front of the student center and sold them. And you said that making that single felt as big a deal as it did to get signed to a major label three years later. And Emily at that point you had to decide between grad school and becoming a full-time musician and you've described that as
2: a real reckoning in your life what happened was it was it a hard decision to make it was not a hard decision to make Amy what was happening was like at that point we really were establishing a nascent career you know not with any long-term vision for getting signed to a major but just having gigs and building a following and, you know, springboarding from Emory in the college scene and college radio was really vibrant and alive. And you could really carve your own path by calling a college music station program directors, and you could just build a path. And Amy was really good at that organizing and, and putting all that together. But the the truth was that Amy was doing really mostly all of the work, you know, hanging the posters, doing making the connections, all this stuff. And and finally, you know, one day, and I was meeting with my uh, English professor, my advisor about considering which grad schools and all that stuff. And Amy was finally like, do you want to do that or do you want to do this? You know, because this is what, what's happening. And and it was just, it didn't take a second of thought, really. I remember it. It was just like, I want to do music. And then from that point on, there was no looking back, no regret, no what, what it ha- would have happened. Because, of course, we continued on to this. I don't even have the words to describe what the path has been like over the years, magical and almost fortuitous and, you know, working with like Amy and I, in many ways, we're diametrically opposed in our personalities and our sensibilities. But there's at the soul core and our, our values and stuff like that. I mean, we're really, we were linked on this path. So it was an easy decision. I'm glad that Amy put it to me. She's never had a problem doing that. Thank God. And that was it. Although now I
3: probably would have, now that I reflect on what a big decision that would have been, I'd probably be pained in asking that question because I'd be like, because now I understand, like, to not go to grad school, that's a huge deal, you know? But what it I didn't mean? feel like that but to for me. me. I was like, so, I was so like into music that I was like, what's the big deal? Just come, just do music, you know? But like, seriously,
0: though, like, what if everything had flopped? And then you hadn't gone to grad school. It's like, what? Well, that was then a she huge She could have gone to grad school later. There's not like a time limit, whereas you really That's did true. grasp That's the true. moment. I
2: had no worries back then. Not a worry in the world, you know. I think like I was maybe following in the footsteps. My dad is a professor. My mom is a librarian. Books, books, books. Let's let's go to grad school. And But I tell you, I remember how easy the decision was. And it was just kind of like, okay, I'll do that. And then, it it was so engaging all the time, playing gigs, writing songs, doing the work of building a career. It was so fun. So fun. You had to get permission from your professors to leave school to go do our little regional tours and stuff.
3: Yeah, I did. They were great about it. I mean, I don't know why they gave me permission, but senior year, because Emily was already out, and we were out touring, and it was so fun. All of our friends would go. We would go to Charleston on the weekends, and you know, drink beer, and I would write term papers after the show, you know. (laughs) It was so outside in a chair, listening to the southern bugs, you know, on the water outside of a Charleston hotel or whatever. Yeah, life was good. Yeah, we slept on floors.
2: We We stayed at Amy's sister's and her girlfriend's house and slept on the floor, and nothing ever felt like paying dues, you know. It's inconceivable that we would share a hotel room now, but we were sharing hotel rooms, and it was so innocent. And just pure fun. And I really do believe that we have not strayed far from the purity of what we do together and what motivates us. So it was a great beginning. And also Amy's dad loaned us the money to make the single. He was yeah. so supportive. Yeah. He always, we knew uh, Dr. Ray was there, his little red light on his video camera. And, you know, there were nights when the only four people in the crowd were Amy's parents and my parents. Literally, we were, we had a lot of support. Emily, you said
0: this about Amy, and and it really struck me. So I just want to just read what you, what you wrote about her at this time. Amy always seemed to know how to make the next right move. I was in awe of her ability to book gigs. A gig at the Moonshadow Saloon in Atlanta was a mind-spinning gig, and she knew that we would be better suited plugging in our acoustics and playing rock clubs rather than playing pin-drop quiet folk clubs. She shaped our destiny at the outset even though neither one of us had or talked about aspirations of making it big or getting a record deal. We simply wanted to get the next great gig and Amy always had a way of making that happen. I wouldn't I wouldn't change a thing about that. <laughs> That's
3: very complimentary.
0: But Amy, did you did you have a sense of where that momentum was taking you? Where where did that sort of drive and ambition come from? It wasn't like this
3: I want to be famous and this is how we do it. It was more like we want to be cool, like ego, (laughs) you know, just like it's cool to play this. It's cool to play punk clubs, you know. So some of it was just adolescent, like, you know, I read to me, I read the outsiders too many times, you know, kind of thing. (laughs) And some of it was like what we were trying to do. I had a sense even before we knew we were gay that we were doing something as outsiders And I always looked for outsider spaces because I felt like we're not going to fit in at a folk club where they get mad if your friends are singing too loud. And (laughs) if you plug your guitars in and play all along the watchtower, that's not going to be a good thing. So we got to play in spaces that'll let us completely be who we are. And those are where the interesting bands are playing. I mean, that was my perspective because I was like, if Suzanne Vega is playing at the Moonshadow Saloon or Aztec Camera, Lloyd Cole and the Commotions or the Roaches, that's where we need to be playing. We need to open for those bands because that's the kind of crowd we want to have. We don't want to be playing Margaritaville, you know, <laughs> the rest of our lives. And that's what we were doing a lot of times, you know. We want, Or Please Come to Boston. Those are great songs, but we don't want to be at the Fern Bars. We want to be at the punk rock clubs playing acoustic instruments because then we are going to, like, stand out. And that was my idea. And thank God it went right because it – who knows? It wasn't that I was a brainiac. I was just, like, compelled by some – a force that I can never control that makes me think of things really fast and constantly be in motion. It wasn't just me as a visionary. I mean, Emily doesn't give herself enough credit because she's half of it, but you just go by your gut instinct when you're that age. You know, like we can go up to New York City and beg to get a gig at CBGB's because that is an institution and you want to say that you played there. <laughs> so that's kind of where we were coming from. And I think that's just, that's not a business head. It's more like a art of, like, how do you want your art to be seen? We just fake it till we make it. We weren't even good enough to be doing half the stuff we were doing. But you have to get in those spaces to get good enough. And that's the thing about being women in music is like, if women are never given a chance to be in those spaces, we cannot get better. And because, I mean, I believe that. Like, you have to have access to all those spaces to evolve and be better than you are. If you keep limiting the space that you're allowed to be in, you can't grow artistically either. And so we had to figure out how to like get into those spaces, but at the same time, create our own wheel in a way and like have those things going at the same time and juggle them. And I just thought the punk clubs were the best route.
0: I want to talk a little bit about the way in which you sort of make music because you don't write together. You've written a few songs together, but you primarily are separate writers. You write your own songs. You sing them together. Was that something that just happened organically? Was that, did you try to write songs together and then found that you were better independently? How how does that work?
2: I don't remember trying to write songs together early on. We just always, I mean, writing songs is a very vulnerable thing. And we just, Amy had her way of expressing herself and I had my way. And we used different chord vocabularies and we might have had different influences and we it, we didn't give a lot of thought to like, oh, should we try to write our songs together? We just fell into the natural way of doing things. Luckily, what we have always been able to do is arrange our songs together. Writing is a little bit oil and water for us, but arranging is not. So it was very organic and inspiring. And, and we kind of have boundaries too, you know, like... Whoever writes the song gets the last word in the arrangement. So if something really doesn't feel good and, but we do a lot of trying things too. And I mean, I'm kind of bouncing ahead to when we prepare for an album or when we're arranging stuff, but yeah, we just, we, we thought differently, expressed ourselves differently. We wanted to write alone. You know, you, it was just absolutely the organic way that we came to things and still do.
0: You recorded your first full-length LP, Strange Fire, in 1987. And by this time, you'd gone from Saliers and Ray to B-Band to choosing the name Indigo Girls. And I've read over and over and over again that you picked out a word you thought was cool from the dictionary. And all this time, prior to my starting the research, I'd always assumed that Indigo was a wink, wink, nod, nod reference to the color lavender, which symbolized gay empowerment in the 60s and 70s. I mean, I remember because I'm, I'm a native New Yorker and, and loved to look at the Empire State Building on Pride Weekend because it was always lavender. So I was shocked to see that it was a completely, like, cool word from the dictionary kind of thing.
2: It could have been, like, a subliminal foreshadowing, you know, on some cosmic level, but I don't think so.
3: Yeah, who knows? Like, it's a weird thing. We just, we literally went through a dictionary and found a word that we liked. It's a good or word. I, I mean, like, now, like, Obviously, we didn't know we were going to be around for this long because Indigo Girls, I mean, I don't know. I don't even know if we liked being girls at the time. (laughs) It's like like such a weird, you know what I mean? Like it's such a weird
2: thing to think about why we chose that name. I mean, I remember Amy, I was a camp counselor. Amy called the camp, and I was in the cafeteria. You got a phone call, Emily. Oh, hey, Amy, how's it going? Yeah, listen, I've been thinking about our band name, and how do you like the word Indigo? I was like... (laughs) I like that. Yeah, I like that. Let's add girls for alliteration. That's why yep. I wanted wow. to add
3: girls just for alliteration, not, not thinking about what it means, just for alliteration.
0: So you got signed to Epic Records in 1988. And this was after Epic Records A&R man Roger Snakeline was in town to see a band called The Rave Ups. And a friend of yours was a college rep for the label and had put your name in the hat at Epic, so to speak. And you've stated that you weren't sure if Snake had accidentally dropped by because the rave-ups were playing down the street or if he had an intention to see you. Have you ever found out what made him drop in to see you specifically That when he first found you?
2: No. I mean, the labels were, po- the <laughs> we labels were, were poking around that. because R.E.M. was going to sign another deal. And Athens was so close, and the the music scene was so fertile, vibrant, and amazing. And so uh, there were other folks from record labels down there poking around.
3: He was eccentric. Yeah, it was a bidding a bidding war for REM. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah,
2: there was no bidding war for us. <laughs>
3: no, back in those days, people A and R people went to towns when they felt like there was a like a movement you know, music scene. They would just go and hear bands, um,
0: which is crazy to think about, right? It's incredible. And so Snake took you under his wing. And from what I understand, he fought really hard for you to get signed on your own terms. What were the terms you were asking for at that time?
2: Uh, it would be like, not we are who we are. We're not going to change who we are. We're not going to move. We're not going to move. Yeah, we're not gonna. This is just what you see is what you get, and we're not gonna compromise. And we're not gonna be like you can't produce us in this way that we're not comfortable with. And because it just wasn't worth it to us. We we you know, like we we're playing little five points pub maybe I don't know three nights a week on the weekends and selling those shows out, and it just felt incredible. And nothing was worth it to compromise anything. It was just like, wow. I mean, we'd never thought about a major label till he came around. And we had to talk our manager and- into being our manager.
0: Well, he didn't. He didn't think you'd ever make it, right? He didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, talk about support. <laughs>
2: yeah.
3: Well, I guess it was written in stone at that point. But um, he's still with us. Yeah. I don't know if he thinks that we're going to make it or not. But um, <laughs> but he's still with us. <laughs> No, I mean, you know, we didn't, I mean, we had nothing to lose. I mean, we had everything to lose, I guess I should say, but we had nothing to lose by just staying at what we were doing because we had tours booked and our second record we were getting ready to make and it wouldn't be a big deal for us to back out of the deal. But something was telling us, you should do this because the amount of work that you have right now to like get all of it done is really hard (laughs) to get it done, like putting records out and booking and promoting and all on our own. So some of it was just like a uh, mechanical, you know, like we need help. Um, and some of it was like the headiness of getting signed offset by the fact that we were aware of corporate identity and music corporation sort of being like, not totally about what we were. So that was a little bit of a struggle because it felt a little bit like cop, like selling out to me um, a bit, but I just thought, well, we can do this the way we want to. And at any point, we can just cut bait, you know, if we need to, because we're going to do it our own way no
0: matter what. Emily, I read that you became depressed after you signed the contract, that you were worried that you'd signed away your freedom and independence. How did you overcome that?
2: I think I was just afraid. I I didn't know it was unknown. And it was, I mean, really shocking that we got signed to a major label a lot of it was the timing because other majors were signing women with guitars. But I was afraid that I I felt like it was sort of like this continental shift that my life was really going to be different and change and I didn't know how that was going to look and I was just afraid, you know, just simple fear, I think is what that was. But then, you know, once we got signed and I kind of had a good time with all that stuff, you know, we won a Grammy, I was really excited about that and... And you'd go to the record party after the Grammys or whatever, and there'd be Bob Dylan or whatever. I think Michael Jackson, he was on Epic and he was on uh, at one of the things. And it was just kind of like, oh, my God, here we are. So that was a little head spinny for me. But initially, it was just the fear of like, whoa, this is big and life is going to change. And I don't know what that's going to feel like.
0: You released your first major label album, aptly titled Indigo Girls, in February of 1989. Closer to Fine. Your first single peaked at number 52 on the Billboard chart. The album reached as high as 22, remained on the charts for 35 weeks, and was certified gold by September. You've been going ever since. What did you make of that nearly instant success? I mean, it's really like going from zero to 60 in three seconds.
3: It was, like Emily says, it was a head-spinning time and We didn't even have time to think half the time, you know, or to even stop and smell the roses because we were just like riding the wave, you know. And I think the biggest thing for us really that really made us understand what was happening was like when we toured with REM and understood, you know, just how much it meant for them to give us that opportunity and the stature they had and the connection to that. We knew that that was a huge deal. We did not take it for granted, and we enjoyed every moment of it, you know? So I think for me, that was when I was like, oh, yeah, okay, this is big. We're on our way wherever we're going. I don't know where. It was intense, but you get in that wave, and your ego gets big, and, you know, you got to figure it out. (laughs) You know what I mean? So you don't ruin yourself. So well, yeah, we had a good time.
0: You said that when the album came out, you read every review and took it all to heart and felt bummed by the not great ones. And you've written, uh, Amy, you've written about how you took yourself very seriously at the time and reading reviews impacted the way you wrote and ultimately stunted your growth. Yeah. How so? Like what we did you feel like you had to start writing for the critics or? No, this thing, I think I wasn't even
3: that evolved as a writer yet. And then- I would spend more too much time thinking about myself and not enough time and just doing my art and just like writing and trying to get better. Because if you're always trying to please, like figure that puzzle out, you're not really focusing on your craft, you know, you're focusing on the wrong thing, which is the end, how you're going to get to the end, you know, and it's like, I, I think it stunted my growth by, Being So distracting, you know, and so like, I don't read anything now. I mean, I'll read something if it's a writer that I really like, you know, like a great rock writer, like Kim Rule or something. I'll read her stuff because she's so good. Yeah, I don't know. I just think I was way too, way too egotistical and self involved and like not self critical in the right way. I was self loathing about my sexuality and my gender, but I was like, not critical about my own writing. You know what I'm saying? Like, I had the wrong things I was thinking about. I should have been like, just working on my writing. It definitely delayed my growth. I was a late bloomer, I think, because of that, probably.
2: I think too, I remember early on with those reviews, there was a distinct sense of like, this is homophobia and sexism. And of course, you can't, you don't know exactly. It's a little bit like gaslighting, because then you're like, well maybe they just don't like the music, or maybe maybe I am too verbose, you know, and there's but all these like a New York Times critic or a Rolling Stones critic or or whatever, you know, all the cool or acclaimed sources, it sort of felt like they they were never gonna accept the value of, of what we'd put out. And I think it's true, you know, in a male dominated business, culture, world If you're not in part of the binary patriarchy, you're uh, attractive to men, they can sexualize you, they can relate to you as a woman who's inferior, and play up on that, then you're not on the same level playing field as other people. And that's just a fact, you know, and that always felt bad. You know, it felt bad going into radio stations, not only because all that talk was such bullshit with DJs, you know, on morning shows, it was just like, so vapid so empty and and endless. We had to keep doing that as long as they were playing us on the radio. We had to go do all these radio shows. And I'm not saying that I am not grateful for the exposure we got in the end to grow our following, but that sexism, that homophobia, that walking into those male DJs and they can't relate to us and that palpable, visceral feeling of that, it sucked. I still believe that If you don't play into the patriarchal, heterosexual mode, uh, hierarchical, you're not going to get as far as a straight woman. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman.
0: Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations.
4: Hey y'all, it's Elise. I have another podcast to tell you about. It's called In The Making. It's an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express. and the founder of an online education platform called I Love Creatives. And on the show, Puno shares her journey from working on the Call of Duty video game to building both a design studio and a trade school for digital design. Puno has practical advice for taking a thoughtful and iterative approach to career building. Most importantly, this show is actionable. It's about how you can take your own next step in the creative world and into the creator economy. It'll help you discover creative, intriguing people who are making a living. And it'll probably inspire you no matter what you do. I know it certainly did for me. Search for In the Making in your podcast player. My thanks to In the Making and Adobe Express for their support. You've had a
0: 35-year career. You've recorded 16 studio albums, seven of which were certified gold, four certified platinum, one double platinum. You've toured all over the world to sold out shows and sold over 15 million albums. You now have your own record labels, record entirely on your own terms. You're gay icons, role models, you're both happily married, you have children, you released the critically acclaimed album Look Long in 2020, and have new work on the way, which I want to talk to you about. But what have you, what haven't you done that you still want to do? Uh, do a, com- uh, maybe a collaboration
3: with OutKast? Yeah. Really? I still want to do that. <laughs> okay. I mean, Atlanta. <laughs> Let's put it out there. <laughs> well, that'll never happen probably, but ever since i heard them i was like oh my god it would be so great to do an indigo girls outcast collaboration so why outcast like what what's i, I just love them and they're home they're home people brilliant yeah. <laughs> they're from just here just
2: brilliant yeah <laughs> but in terms of things that we haven't done yet that would be cool to do like a lot of times they come to us for instance uh, playing with symphonies like before mm. we played with symphonies we didn't well i don't remember thinking i want to start playing with symphonies across the country and then we were invited into this world. I know that certain artists, you know, like Nancy Griffith had the Blue Moon Orchestra and so on, but that was just a real, a really, really great thing. And then playing on the Lilith Fair was a real shot in the arm to our career at that time, and for me, quite inspiring. And um, and then there's this this film coming out, Glitter and Doom, that's an independent film that the writers just came to us and said, we want to use Indigo Girls music for this. And that came out of nowhere. And then and then we have this brilliant filmmaker who's working on a documentary about us. And that came out of nowhere. So all these things keep presenting themselves to us. But for me personally, I'm working on two different musicals. So it's become a new sort of dream of mine to have that come to fruition on a stage.
0: You also have your activism. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that. It's, it seems like your activism has always been intertwined with your music. In 1993, you co-founded the nonprofit Honor the Earth, which is dedicated to indigenous environmental justice and green energy solutions. And you've provided more than $3 million in grants to over 200 Native American communities. What first motivated you to create this this effort? We had
3: seen the great Native activist Winona LaDuke at an Earth Day show, honestly, and um, we were backstage telling her how amazing she was because she really spun. We had never heard her talk. We heard Winona speak and we were just like, oh, okay, like this is this is what we want to do for the environmental work that we do, because this is the lens we need to see everything through. And we just talked to her and we started scheming. And what grew out of that was Honor the Earth, which was really co-founded by uh, women from the Indigenous Women's Network, some leaders from the Seventh Generation Fund, and I believe some people that are now in the Indigenous Environmental Network were involved. And we basically just had leaders from different communities who created a board. And we basically just built this organization that would do what our part of it was to kind of build bridges between non-Native and Native communities by playing tours and shows that were all geared around Honor the Earth and the issues. So we would do like a regional tour that focused on like a nuclear waste issue or we would do issues around salmon in the Northwest and water quality issues and, and toxic waste and cultural sustainability and sacred site work. And all of that went on for years and years and the tours would go into these different areas and we would have kind of cross-pollination with Native artists and white artists and other people of color that were working on the same issues, maybe around, like, uh, toxic waste dumps in their neighborhoods and stuff like that. So it's basically, for us, has been the model that we learned to do all of our activism through. So once we met these Native leaders, they became our mentors, and we learned how to do grassroots activism with everything from queer issues, feminism, death penalty work, immigration, you know, just anything that we do. We always have that lens of like, how do you do community-based organizing? Before that, we did like benefits for, you know, homeless projects and women's shelters and a lot of like feeding the community kind of things, you know, during the height of HIV when we were just starting out, we did, you know, we would do the Meals on Wheels type stuff and things like that too. So We've always been interested in it, but I think the the Native mentorship gave us a structure, you know, that we understood to be effective.
0: I was really intrigued by you stating that you could no longer see environmentalism except through the lens of Indigenous communities. How did you come to that realization?
2: Well, the Indigenous communities do not separate, these are air quotation marks, nature it's not separate from their lives. I mean, the indigenous communities that have the wisdom for how to continue to protect and and nurture the earth are completely connected to everything. So earth and spirituality and vision and ancestry and um, future generations and all those things are, are completely organically combined together, for lack of a better way to describe it. Where it's like, you know, other communities, we compartmentalize things, you know, or we don't because we're so removed from, f- say, feeding from the earth or collecting the wild rice, the manumen that the the tribes from that uh, sort of mid upper Midwest part of North America, and the sustenance economies and all those things where, you know, a lot of us, we go to a grocery store, and it's all wrapped up, and we're so removed from that. But the the completely holistic organic living way of indigenous peoples it's really the only way you can look at a protection of the earth and gratitude to the earth and is to be connected in that way and also let us who do not live in those communities listen to and learn from those communities let us be allies let us not go in and say we're going to do this here and we can make these changes and it's all going to come from the government or we'll you know this political movement you know it's like tell us what we don't know and show us how we can be allies and what we can take back to our own ways of life separated from your more completely integrated lives and what
3: we realized i think too is That, you know, when you look at resources that we've draw from the earth, you know, nuclear, uranium mining and coal mining and the way we use water and the hydroelectric dams and all this, just really so many resources end up, it ends up ironically to be on native land. I mean, it's all native land in the United States, but but you know what I'm saying. So it's like, it's kind of the way any communities of color end up being impacted just far more by our energy consumption and affected more by climate change. And so it's like, that's who you listen to then. You listen to them because they're being affected by it and they shouldn't be. It's just the same old thing, you know, communities that are disenfranchised, yet these people that we've worked with are so powerful and they're so brilliant and they're strategizing about how they do these movements are just, it's kind of like the way Black Lives Matter was so transformative. I mean, these are transformative people that that know how to organize. And it's like, why wouldn't you listen to them? You know? So I think like, for us, it was, you know, just the moment of like, re- realization that really steered our whole lives.
0: Musically, you'll be touring through 2022 for your most recent album, Look Long, which reunited you with one of your strongest backing bands to date. And One of the things that I was so struck by when I first listened to the album and then I've been re-listening in prep for today is both how personal it is. It's a lot more personal than, I think, a lot of your other previous music, but it's also really political. It's both. It's sort of like this Venn diagram of both the personal and
2: the political. Um, Why the name Look Long? Well, it's the name of a song I wrote, so it did come from that. Yes. But, but But it also, you know... The implication is to look to the future. How can we make a better world? What kinds of things need to be changed politically, personally? You know, the older I get, absolutely impossible to separate the personal from the political and the integration of things. And so look long is just, you know, indicative of that. Let's have a a vision for the future that can be a, a better world.
0: Emily, you said this about the music on Look Long. Uh, We're shaped by our past, what makes us who we are and why. In this moment of delirious upheaval, Look Long considers the tremendous potential of ordinary life and suggests the possibility that an honest survey of one's past and present, unburdened by judgment, can give shape to something new, the promise of a way forward. What do you mean by an ordinary life? You said that. I can't believe I said that. That's a great. Yeah. Book. Are you sure Jeez. I said that? Yeah. She you wrote that. Wow. I. I, I it was that must was, have been was was one of my more loose. I, you should be a not writer. have conjured that myself. One, one of my <laughs> no, more.
3: You should be a writer. That's a good. That's one really of the more lucid, <laughs> yeah, <she> lucid
2: <laughs> moments. Well, I think a lot about the role that we play, uh, and I think a lot about our purpose in life, and I think a lot about all the systems that break apart the beauty of what life could be. And so I've come to have the utmost admiration for individual life, the simplicity of the human struggle, the what people overcome, how they join each other in community. And I focus much less on grand works and how it is, our little lives, our little human struggles lives that are able to highlight what the best of humanity is capable of through community, through dreams, through art, through justice, work. We're, we're given these lives. What do they mean? What? How can we be in allyship with each other? How can we dismantle our own thinking? I mean, I think a lot about the binary paradigm, how structured my life has been by it how much my, my wife is a therapist and she has many trans clients. And I think about all the kids who struggle. And this one woman, uh, uh, she's doing her PhD. She's worked with a lot of sexual minority youth, non-binary gender affirming youth. And she said, these kids are tired. They're tired from always looking for a safe place, but they're also the, the, they fight, they fight for the future. And I think about any, you know, people's of color, who fight for the future and the beauty of their own integrity and and human lives. So it's a lot about that. The
0: last thing I want to talk to you about today is your new film, your show, your concert special. Um, Mm. (laughs) You have Look Long Together, which premieres on Sunday, May 8th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, exclusively on veeps.com. It is a career-spanning concert featuring some of your greatest music, some rarities, and for the first time, full band live renditions of songs from Look Long. What made you decide to do this now? I can't wait. By the way, I, I was trying so hard to get a screener so I can see it. And <laughs> I saw the trailer. I've watched it like fifteen times. It's. I'm so excited about this. Tell us what how this came to be and what we can expect. Well, it grew, I mean, it grew out of when we were in the thick of the
3: pandemic and you couldn't go see music and we were doing live streams, you know, of just sit, us sitting in a room playing, um, reading the chat rooms and having fun. And we had planned a big summer tour with our band and we were so excited about it. Yeah. <laughs> and then we had to can the whole thing. So we basically were like, let's just do it, have everybody record at their houses and you know, everybody was doing this, like creating virtual shows by remotely recording. And it's a long process, but basically it took us quite a long time to get it done. And now we're done, <laughs> but we're going to go on tour as well. So it's kind of funny, you know, um, but it is a chance to see the band that like a lot of the people that we play with, really, it's like guest. it's like our band, but it's also guests that come in and out of our lives and sit in with us all the time and just you know, make music with us. And it's just like a mishmash of stuff
0: that we put together basically. I have I've have one last question for you, and this is for both of you. What is it like to do shows where everyone in the audience knows the lyrics to your songs and sings
2: along with you? It's beautiful. I mean, it is it's an energetic event, you know. It it's just All those molecules swirling around, and people are feeling joy. And there is nothing like singing in public together. It's a unique experience. It's very galvanizing in the most powerful way, and especially in these times, you know, just to come together and to sing together. And I never think, oh, I wrote this particular song that everyone's singing. Never, never. It's almost like a channeling, and here we all are, and. Because when I go to a concert, I sing my heart out, even with a mask on my face. Um, It is really a way for people to get together. And so it's a thrill. I never get tired of it. And our fans, our singers, our community, they really love to sing. So uh, it's wonderful. It's physical.
0: I once saw Loudon Wainwright III playing at the bottom line in the 80s and He was singing and realized that the audience was singing along with him, so he stopped singing, and we were all still singing, and he started to cry. Oh, Oh, wow. Yeah. Amy, what about you? Last word.
3: It's, I mean, I reiterate what Emily said. It's beautiful. It's, uh, everything else kind of goes away, and you just exist in that moment, and everybody's singing together, and it's, what separates us doesn't matter anymore, you know, and I think that's the beauty of music, so yeah it's a it's a great feeling
0: well it's definitely definitely the beauty of your music amy ray emily Saliers. thank you thank you thank you for joining me today on design matters and thank you for giving us so much beautiful music over the last 40 years here's to another 40.
2: thanks debbie what an honor to be with you for real thank you yeah thank I you
3: mean, i I, I'm a total fan of your podcast. I thank I you. Listen to it. <laughs> so uh, I he's still my I do. <laughs> I, I love your interviews. I love how well you do your research. It's all good. Thank it's, you. You're great. It's an honor.
0: Thank you. Thank you. To see the Indigo Girls concert special on Veeps from May 8th to May 15th, go to www.veeps.com. V E E P s.com to see all of the extraordinary music the indigo girls have been making all these years get tickets to all their live shows go to www.indigogirls.com this is the 18th year we've been podcasting design matters and i'd like to thank you for listening and remember we can talk about making a difference we can make a difference or we can do both i'm debbie melman and i look forward to talking with you again soon
1: Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. Interviews are usually recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day.